Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. I am the very same Dr. Michael Rydelnik. I'm professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. And today is a very special edition of our Bible study across America. It's not going to be like it always is. No phone calls. It's pre-recorded. So don't call in today. Rather, it's going to be a special discussion with a friend of mine about a new book. Let me tell you about the book just for a moment. It's called 50 Most Important Bible Questions, and I happen to have written it. And so we wanted to talk about it today. And to help me do that, I have a special co-host today. He's my friend. I think that's the first and foremost issue. His name is Cisco Cotto. He's the campus pastor at Village Bible Church in suburban Chicago. He's also an adjunct professor of preaching and discipleship at Moody Bible Institute. And uh, for people in the Chicago area, they would know him. He's a well-known radio broadcaster here in the Chicago area. He's been, as long as I've been in Chicago, I think you've been on the radio, have you not? Yeah, more than 20 years. Yeah, yeah wow. Which sounds weird to say that now. Yeah, so anyway, that's Cisco Cotto. I Just honestly, Cisco, I appreciate you so much for what you do as a pastor and as a preacher. I listen to your podcasts and that's always so much fun. But you're the guy that taught me a lot about what to do about the radio. Did you know that? Well, we have this nice relationship here where you, you, you know, help me with Bible questions. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why this show is appointment listening for me and my family every Saturday. Uh, and then I help you a little bit with radio, but you don't need much help anymore. Right? Well, you know, when I first started, it was a lot of, um, uh, 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 and Cisco called, let me help you with that, Michael. And I really appreciated it. So anyway, uh, and you know, I, I actually, we met, I think, when I was the interim pastor at the congregation you were going to. That's right. And uh, so when you were starting to preach, I got to give you a little bit of pointers about preaching, too. So that was kind of fun. Well, those I still need. You're fine yeah. with the radio stuff, but the, the, the preaching <laughs> tips, please keep those coming. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, today you're going to kind of do the question asking, and I'm going to do my best to answer those questions. And what we're talking about is a book that is coming out, or just came out, I should say. Uh, it's called 50 Most Important Bible Questions. It's published by Moody, and the author is Michael Rydelnik, me. So I didn't know, I, I really wanted to talk about the book, but I thought, how do I interview myself? So I decided instead of doing that, Today, it's going to be Cisco, and so I'm turning it right over to you right now. And so you didn't want to say, you know, uh, Michael, what did you think when you were writing this part exactly. of Michael? Yeah, what prompted <laughs> you to write this, Michael? Well, the, so. <laughs> well, then I'll ask you, and uh, thanks. It's really, it's wonderful to be here. I love whenever I can see you, so this is really, really good. You have been on Open Line how many years now? Nine years. A little nine bit more years. than nine years, yeah. So you've answered thousands of Bible questions by now. Mm-hmm. How in the world do you get it down to 50? What's that process like? I would love to tell you the scientific process that I used to get it down. There was none. Uh, <laughs> here's the way I did it is, first of all, I asked Trisha. She keeps a better log either written or even in her mind about which were the most commonly asked questions. And so I want it, since they were commonly asked, I think they're important. If so many people have the same question over and over and over again, I thought, well, I better try to answer those. And so th those are some of the questions in, in the book. And then there are other questions that I thought are significant because of their biblical theological importance. And I think they need to be answered. And so those as well, I put 
those in. And then there are a lot of people have, a, I find that most of the questions that we get on open line are Old Testament questions. People seem to think it's a closed book. It's not. Uh, and they have a lot of questions about the morality of the Old Testament and what is the Old Testament really saying here and there. And so since I love the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, I thought let's include those questions because I think they're really important. It's what people are asking. And then there are really practical questions that people have. And uh, I think they're important. I think for me, the most important question is the first question, which is what is the gospel? I think people, and a lot of people don't ask me that, but I hear people present the gospel and they miss present it. They no, don't you even, find they don't get all the details. Yeah, they don't yeah. get it right. And so I thought, I'm going to pick that the most important question is the first one. And uh, then there are other questions. People have questions about their own spiritual life and their own security. And so I included a bunch of questions about that. Well, and I'm going to ask you some of those questions mm-hmm. here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I want to let you know if you've not yet gotten the book since it's just out, uh, the the way that it is... Oh, we, we have to say the book title seven times in the next... <laughs> Are you uh, contractually days. obligated? No, <laughs> I just heard that that's how people remember what it is. So it's the 50 most important Bible questions. Or Google Michael Rydelnik book. Yeah, that's right. Usually, that, that'll 50 help most too. important Bible questions. That's three now. Okay. So you have it divided up, you, you take the 50, and you go through uh, many different, I guess, categories that are, are more broad, questions about the gospel and salvation, questions about the Bible in general, questions about the primeval world of Genesis, and in, in just a couple of minutes, I have some questions there I, I want to mm-hmm. throw at you, questions about the Old Testament, questions about Jesus the Messiah, questions about the Jewish people, questions about seeming contradictions and mysteries, and questions about biblical concerns and practices. Just to give people sort of an overview of how the book is laid out in, in mm-hmm. these broader categories. I appreciate all of it. I, I'm, I'm almost through the whole thing, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I, I literally can't put it down because the answers are really good. And I'm not saying that just because I'm sitting across yeah. the table from you. I'll pay you later. Yeah, okay. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I appreciate that you, you, you approach this clearly as someone who's not just a professor, uh, someone who's not just studied God's Word for a long time, but someone who was a longtime pastor and you, you're really you're really trying to address not just what does the Bible say about this, but to do it in a very pastoral way. Yeah, I, that's you know what I wasn't writing for my colleagues at Moody, uh, although I hope they'll like it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't writing for seminary grads like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was trying to write for the uh, the regular person who uh, has not had any graduate or undergraduate training in Bible and theology, but just wants to read the Bible, understand it uh, for the people in my congregation, so to speak, for the people uh, who listen to Open Line, for just just uh, people who really want to know what the Bible has to say, but also don't have the the more advanced training that people have gotten, and that are, it's worthwhile. But I think, that, you know, we've got to make it I wanted to make it so that anyone could understand what what the the answers are. And that doesn't mean no depth. No. It, it just means it's written because there's a lot of depth here. It's, yeah. it's just written in a way that you don't need advanced training in order to understand what I it's hope, saying. I hope, you know, at least most of the questions, let's yeah. say. Which is, well, but that's like open line, right? It's like open line here where yeah. you're answering questions in a way that hopefully everyone is going, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah I can get that. Mm-hmm. I, they, they even say, sometimes people say, at least I understand you. I don't agree with you, <laughs> but at least I understand you. So that's good. You put this, I, I was wondering if you'd put this in the book, and you did. You put it right near the beginning because I, I hear on open line all the time, People will begin a question with, uh, Dr. Rydelnik, what do you think? Yeah. 
<laughs> and you immediately correct them. And so you put this in the book. It says, um, frequently people call open line and ask, what do you think about fill in the blank? Regardless of the topic, my automatic response is that it doesn't matter what I think. Let's look at what the Bible has to say yeah. about that. And so this book, for people who pick it up, 50 Most Important Bible Questions, this isn't what Michael Rydelnik thinks about whatever these particular topics are. It's, it's what I think about what the Bible says. I do my best to really try and think biblically about subjects. And just last week, uh, one of our radio hosts on Open Line called me. Uh, about what's going on in Afghanistan. He wanted to know what the prophetic significance of it was. And I said, I can't see any prophetic significance about the pullout from Afghanistan. And we were laughing about, not about the pullout, which is fraught with all sorts of issues. Sure. But what I laughed about was, if only I could see prophetic significance about everything that happened, I could write that book and sell a million copies. And uh, But what I really am trying to do is not be sensational, but just stick to what the scriptures say. And Paul has an interesting phrase in 1 Corinthians, don't go beyond that which is written. And and so there are things that I don't mind at all pleading ignorance because I don't know what the Bible, because the Bible doesn't speak to it. And so we want to really stick to when the questions are raised, what does the Bible have to say? And I, I do my best to stick with that. And how to process through it and, and how to think mm-hmm. through these big questions of the day because, you know, may, maybe there are uh, not specific biblical answers, but at least God has presented certain ideas and concepts and, mm-hmm. and we can make our decisions that way. Yeah, and like with this thing with Afghanistan, one of the things that I was really struck by is that in the Bible— in this time that we're living in before the end of day, well, we're in the end of days since Jesus was raised from the dead but uh, and ascended. But we're not in the events of the tribulation yet. We're not uh, there. However, uh, when I read the prophets, I see that we, that, that sometimes the, the bad guys win in scripture. You know, yeah. Babylon defeated Judah and Habakkuk's like, well, God, how could you let that happen? And it uh, doesn't mean that God isn't on the throne. It's just part of his plan. Uh, and the, the God, the nations are just a drop in the bucket. Uh, that's what Isaiah says. And so what it points me to is one day there will be justice. One day the bad guys won't win. The Lord Jesus will return. The rider on the white horse who's faithful and true, whose robe is dipped in blood, uh, he is king of kings and lord of lords, and he will establish his kingdom. So when this whole event happened in Afghanistan, just for example, even though it's not in the book, what I was trying to do is say, okay, how can I think biblically about what's going on here? What what does the Bible inform me about? It's not about end of days prophecy in this point. It's just trusting God to be in control even when things are going wrong until the Lord Jesus returns. And isn't it interesting that it's it's often in those times when the bad guys seem like they're winning that our belief in God's sovereignty and goodness, that's when it's tested. Exactly. Right? If everything's going really well, yeah, God's great. He's wonderful. And yeah. it's when things seem like they're out of control or do I really believe that? Yeah, and and the funny thing to me that we we forget is one of the, my great concerns now about Afghanistan, this is a small, growing church in Afghanistan, the body of believers there they are going to face some terrible persecution. The last 20 years, people have come to faith. And yet I have the confidence that whenever there's persecution, it starts in the book of Acts with the persecution of Stephen, the gospel goes forth really strong. And and the same thing happened, for example, in China. When when it fell to communists, 
persecuted the church, and the church grew. And so my prayer, I'm praying for the protection and preservation of those brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, but also that God will use the tough times they're going through to advance the gospel. So I'd love to be able to ask you some questions from the book. Okay, let's do that. We're going to take a break here. Uh, And when we come back, we're going to really focus on discussions about uh, questions about the book, 50 Most Important Bible Questions. I'm grateful for my co-host today, Cisco Cotto. I'm Michael Radonik. We're going to be right back with more discussion about 50 Most Important Bible Questions. So stay right there. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Is it possible to lose my salvation? Which Bible translation is best? If you've ever wondered about these questions, you'll want to check out my book called 50 Most Important Bible Questions. Request a copy today when you give a gift to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line with me, Michael Rydelnik. My co-host today is Cisco Cotto. He's a well-known radio guy here in Chicago, but also he's a pastor. He's a professor at Moody, and I'm so grateful uh, that he jo- is joining me today to talk about our current the book that's our current resource. It's 50 Most Important Bible Questions. It's the book that I worked on this past year, and I'm so grateful it's finally out. So, Cisco, you wanted to pick it up here. Yeah, I want to give people a taste of okay. what they get in this book, if I could, by by just asking some questions directly out of the book, just mm-hmm. to to see how you answer them. Because I I've, won't read the answers. Know. I'll just <laughs> you'll actually say the answers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the The first one that gnaws at just about everyone. So I'm glad you, in the the book, you you don't just take sort of the easy questions, the softball questions. You really get to some of the difficult ones and some of the questions that people really wrestle with, uh, beginning with, can believers lose their salvation? Mm, yeah, uh, there are passages that um, Hebrews six, for example, it's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there are some passages that make it seem as though there is a way for you to walk away. You mm-hmm. know, whether it's because you did something bad or you didn't do enough good or whatever. Uh, I, 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 help us understand that. Yeah, you know, I, I have several questions related to that mm-hmm. in the book and in uh, 50 Most Important Bible Questions. So that, that they have different nuances. But I always start when I discuss this with what Jesus had to say in John chapter 6. And uh, by the way, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because I wanted a little bit more time to answer. When I'm, when I'm answering on the radio... You know, you got to just hit some things really quickly. You have about three minutes to answer a question. And it takes a little bit more time to answer some of these questions more thoroughly. And so even now, I'll, I'll give a brief answer. But if you want the thorough answer, it's in the book. Yeah, because most yeah. of the questions, you, you have a good six or seven pages you yeah. know, on most of them to be able to answer it. Yeah. So uh, in John chapter 6, uh, verse 37 It says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus promises that he will receive us. And then it says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus says he always does the Father's will. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he's given to me, but should raise him on the last day. So what Jesus is saying is I always do the Father's will. This is the Father's will. Not only will he receive us, 
He will keep us. Uh, when we come to him, he keeps a hold of us. He doesn't let go. Uh, that's God's will, and he always does the Father's will. The Son always does the Father's will. So if the Lord Jesus could lose one of us, if he could let go of you or if he could let go of me or anyone uh, that has truly come to him, well, then he's not doing the Father's will, and then he's not the Messiah. And so the, his entire messianic claim, his entire claim to being God the Son, his deity, it's all wrapped up right here in his ability to, to keep a hold of us and not lose us. And then, you know, I know the, the great problems, but I know how miserable I am. I know how bad I am. I know all the rotten things I do. Uh, and I, I'm just talking about you here, Cisco. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the, the point is, he says, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So that's not just to concede to sin and say, yes, well, that's, that's the way it is. But there is hope for us. One day we will be resurrected. One day we will have immortal, glorified bodies that do not sin anymore. That's his promise. So what this passage is saying is we can be assured of three great truths. When we come to Jesus, when we trust in him, when we believe that he died for us and rose again, we can be assured that he will receive us, he will keep us, and he will transform us ultimately into his image when we see him we shall be like him. And so that's, a, that's just the great hope. And if we just take Jesus at his word, we would never doubt whether or not we can uh, be saved. Yeah, see, you're rooting this in Jesus, which I mean, obviously it, it sort of seems like, duh, you know, of course yeah. we should root this in Jesus. It seems like when we begin doubting, you know, am I always saved? Am, you know, mm -hmm. can I lose this? That we're moving away from Jesus and what he did and into, am I good enough? Mm -hmm. uh, have I done what I needed to do? And so if we just keep taking it back to Christ, did, did his death on the cross, was it not good enough? Was it mm -hmm. not perfect enough? Did it not accomplish this? If we keep pushing it back toward him, then we go, oh, that's, I'm assured of my salvation because of Jesus, not yeah. because of me. Yeah, you know, the, the old Calvinist uh, idea is perseverance, perseverance of the saints. I much prefer perseverance of the Savior. <laughs> in, in John 10. I like that. Uh, it talks about how uh, he has us in his grip, and so does the Father, and they will never let us go. And I just think, I, I, when I see that, I think of crossing the street with my two-year-old son when we lived in Queens, New York. There was a huge street, Queens Boulevard, four lanes on each side, big semi-tractor trailers, boom, rolling down the street. It was a major street because uh, those tractor trailers couldn't go on the major parkways in New York, so they had to take streets. And uh, it, it was terrifying, and there we'd be crossing the street to go to the playground, and Zach would have one hand in Eva's and one hand in mine. Even if he tried to <laughs> run away, there was no way he was getting away from us. You know, he was holding on, and we were holding on to him more than he was holding on to us. There was just no way he would get away. So when people say, well, you know, nothing could take us from the Father's hand, but we could jump out, give it a try. You cannot. He yeah. will hold on to us. Trust his strength yeah. uh, to do that. Yeah. Uh, so that's where it starts. And of course, I, I do try in the book to answer a few questions about Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 and things like that that people have. But... It, that foundational to that is understanding what, what Jesus said. Yeah. 
That's good. That's good. Uh, there's um, some. I, I almost wish we could get to all fifty, but that's why you had to write a book. Yeah. Um, let, let me throw this one at you. Um, you have all of these Old Testament saints who lived for generations and generations. So all these people who show up in the Hebrews Hall of Fame in Hebrews yeah. chapter eleven. Um, we we believe that we will see them in heaven someday, right? Right. And yet, all these people lived and died before Christ, right? And before his life, before his death, before his resurrection. So one of the questions that you answer in the book is, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Because it seems like they, they couldn't have had faith in Jesus, could they? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, what does that look like? Well, they certainly did not believe in Jesus because he had not yet come. That's right. So the truth of it is we're all saved exactly the same way, by grace, through faith, in the revealed will of God. That's the way we're saved. For all time. And and in the Old Testament, people were saved by grace, through faith, in the uh, efficacy of the sacrificial system, let's say. They, they have to believe that this is really the, the process that God said you have to offer these sacrifices, uh, particularly the Yom Kippur sacrifice, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, and that there's a coming Messiah who will fulfill them. I think the Hebrew Bible is pretty clear that it's looking for a Messiah that would be the, uh, the one who is the ultimate sacrifice. In fact, in Isaiah 53, he is called, one of the, uh, the, one of the words for him is if he will render himself a guilt offering, it says in Isaiah 53. So it, it actually talks about the Messiah as a guilt offering. So it uses the sacrificial terminology. So that's what they believed. But they didn't believe in Jesus. They believed in that. And the way it worked, in my opinion, this is how atonement worked in the Old Testament. It was sort of like a credit card system that we have today. You know, I see all these college students, they get their first credit card, they get so excited, <laughs> and they uh, they go over to uh, the, the, the local coffee shop and they invite, uh, let's say, a young a moody student, female student to join them uh, there, and they say, don't worry, I got it, and they put it on their credit <laughs> card, and then they run over to the bookstore and they pay for all their books, and they, I got it, and they put it on their credit card, and they say, well, this is so easy. Next thing you know, they're... they're going out to a pizza joint with all their buddies from their floor. And then they say, I got it. I'll pay for the pizza, you know. And then the bill comes at the end of the month. And they're like, wow, that's a lot of money. I don't have that money. So what do they do? They pay the minimum. They pay the minimum. And now they're absolved for another month. Uh, they're paid, they've paid their debt. They're covered. Uh, and they're not in trouble. And so they forget. And they start using that again and again and again, that credit card. And they get the next bill and it's even worse. What do they do? They pay the minimum. And pretty soon they uh, they can't pay the principal. Like They're not even paying all the interest. Yeah. They're just paying the minimum. And that's sort of how the Old Testament sacrifices, the Yom Kippur sacrifice worked. It was paying the minimum. It was giving, it was just kind of covering uh, the debt that was owed every year. That sacrifice was offered. And there, the sins were forgiven. And each year the high priest would pay the minimum. But when Jesus, our great high priest, came, uh, he paid the principal, he paid the debt, the interest, and he paid for everything else that we were going to charge. Uh, and he took away all our sin. And what he did for them in the Old Testament is he, he even paid for the debt for those, it was because they were anticipating his coming, he paid the debt that they owed even after they were dead and gone and with the father. So it was ultimately his sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sin. 
It was only the death of Messiah and his resurrection that did it. So that's how they were saved in the Old Testament, I believe, and they were fully saved. Uh, Now, some people do say, well, if they could be saved without conscious faith in Jesus, then maybe people could be saved today without conscious faith. I've heard that. That, That's sort of almost universalism. You know, if someone just tries their best, if if they they, uh, respond to whatever little bit of light that they have, well, then why can't they be saved too? Well, it's because we're saved by grace through faith in the revealed will of God. And the Lord Jesus has been revealed. It says in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, today he, he spoke to us lots of different ways in past times, but today he has spoken to us through his son. The, the, the message is clear. We have to have faith that Jesus died for, conscious faith, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. In uh, John eight twenty four, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, I am, which is a declaration of deity, you're still in your sins. So we have to have conscious faith in him. Well, we're going to come back with more of a discussion of 50 most important Bible questions. My co-host today, I'm Michael Radonik. My co-host is Cisco Cotto. Stick with us because we've got lots more to talk about when we talk about important Bible questions. Stay right there. Each weekend on Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Radelnik, we study the scriptures around our radio kitchen table. You can become a kitchen table partner through your monthly support of Open Line. Your gifts help me to provide biblical answers to questions that many believers have about the Savior, the scriptures, and the spiritual life. Along with other partners, you're helping people receive guidance from God's Word. Become a kitchen table partner today. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Some of the most confusing passages of Scripture contain the most important truths. If you'd like clarity on some of the biggest biblical mysteries, be sure to request my book called 50 Most Important Bible Questions. Request your copy today when you give a gift of any amount by calling 888-644-7122 or go online to openlineradio.org. We're back. I am Michael Rydelnik. This is, joining me today is Cisco Cotto. It would normally be the FEBC mailbag time when we, uh, when Trisha comes in, Trisha McMillan, our producer, would come in and read the questions you've sent in. Uh, today, we're, we're not going to do that because we're talking about 50 most important Bible questions. But I do want to let you know, you could check out our website, openlineradio.org. There's all sorts of links there that you will like and will, you'll find helpful, I hope. But there's also one that says, ask Michael a question. You can click on that and post your question. And uh, next week, we'll be back with the FEBC mailbag, and Trisha will be in asking those questions. So feel free to send your questions in if you like. And now back to Cisco as he's talking to me about this book. Well, it's it's almost like uh, the mailbag segment because the questions that you include in 50 most important Bible questions are from your listeners. Yeah, that's you know, right. Many of them either called in over the years or There's not have one sent question in. in here that I have not been asked on the radio. Really, that's just great. Just so you know. So. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan. I'll give my endorsement to here for whatever that's worth. I'm not just here because I'm your friend. Uh, the reason why I'm just about through the book already is because 
it's not only the answers that are good, but the questions that are good. I mean, these are questions that people are really wrestling with. And so I get done with one answer and I go, oh, well, oh, but then there's that question. Oh, I need to get to that one too. Well, you know? I'm glad for that. That's but, good. You know, I, it does, the name of the book is 50 Most Important Bible Questions. And people keep asking me, are there answers? And <laughs> yes, of course there are answers as well. Otherwise it would be 50 pages long or less. That's right. It's yeah. a little list. Yeah. It would be a, a few yeah. a few pages in a notebook. Here yeah. they are. Here are the questions. Now go find someone to answer them. That's right. No, I, there are answers in there too. Here's one that's important. Um, Is the biblical creation story literal? Uh, You have a lot of people who are not quite sure. Maybe it's a myth. Maybe it's just uh, a story designed to reveal that God created or, you know, God's in charge, but it's, it's not really literal. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know anyone that's happy with anything that a person might say about this. But I I believe that when you read a narrative in the Bible, it is presumed that we need to take it at face value. That's what Genesis is. Mm -hmm. It's a narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I just take it at face value. Now, the the issue isn't what does it mean. The real issue comes down is how do we harmonize that with what scientists say? And for me, uh, now, I, I, I guess I have some caveats that I would give about this. There are people who disagree with me as long as they believe that God is the creator, whatever way they explain this, I'm okay with that because certainly I wasn't there. And so, <laughs> so, if only there were photographs yeah, back then. <laughs> if we had only had video, we'd yeah, know. Right, yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm not I'm not as uh, ooh I'm not as dogmatic as I would be about the, you know certain things that are taught in the Bible, but I think at face value. This seems to be a, a creation narrative. Therefore, I hold to what some people would call a young earth. And what young earth, I don't mean 4004 BC, the way Bishop Usher calculated it, just taking every name in the genealogy and how old they were. And the reason I don't do that is because there could be generations that are not mentioned in the, the genealogies. And so it could be big jumps between generations. Because that's how some ancient genealogies work. You're not just making that up. I mean, that's literally what they've found. Yeah. Yeah. And so as a result, it could be, I don't know, maybe the earth is 10,000 or 20,000 BC at the creation, but still it's a young earth. It's not billions and billions of years as Carl Sagan would talk about it. So I take a young earth and then you say, well, how do you explain the fossil record? How do you explain all this ancient looking things? And I would... uh, I have two really simple explanations uh, about how old the earth looks and the fossil record and everything like that. I would first of all say that God created the world with apparent age. And what I mean by that is that when Adam was created, he didn't look like a one-minute-old infant. He looked like a fully grown man. I don't know how old he looked, but he was fully grown. He was an adult. He was able to get married right away. Uh, And so... He created Adam when he was a minute old to look like a fully grown adult. Therefore, I think when God made the world, he made it look like it was a fully grown adult world. It, the trees were, were huge. They, they were made to look fully grown. And that includes even light from the stars because it takes light years for the light to be seen here on earth from the stars. Yet God could make it so that that light already was progressing and so he made the world with apparent age. The second way I would understand what the Bible is saying, uh, that taking it at face value, that the earth is somewhat young, 
is catastrophism. Uh, what I mean by catastrophism is sometimes there are catastrophes that make things look a lot more ancient, have a fossil record that makes it look a lot more ancient than they are. This become really became really evident with the explosion of Mount St. Helens, oh, the yeah. volcano. Yeah. And the top half of the mountain with its forest was ripped off and the trees landed in Spirit Lake below Mount St. Helens. And so that you have a whole forest of trees in a lake. And because their roots were ripped out, the roots drank up the water in the lake first. And so the trees, when they finally sank, when they became waterlogged, the weight of the tree was greater in the root than it was in the rest of the tree. And so they sank, all these trees sank into the, the bottom of the lake with all the, the lava and everything else that came out with the eruption on the trees. They all sank down to the bottom of the lake as if they were standing up upright. And it looks like there's a forest, a, a fossilized forest of trees underneath Spirit Lake. Now, if we didn't know about Mount St. Helens, this catastrophe, we would think, wow, a billion years ago or a million years ago, there was a forest here and somehow a lake developed and it fossilized it. But it was really 1980. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, or 81, I don't remember what year it was. But So we're talking 40 years. Well, what does that tell me? That when, and I think there was a great catastrophe in the Bible, uh, when we read about the great flood from Noah's day, it, it's, that wasn't just a flood. It says the foundations of the deep erupted, that there, there were volcanoes and there were earthquakes and all this disruption. And as a result of that, I think it, it left a fossil record that made it look much older than it really was. And so for that reason, uh, I would say that I hold to a young earth. I think we can believe the biblical record. I don't, I don't, I'm not a scientist, but it seems to me that those two issues, catastrophism and uh, uh, apparent age, make it all understandable. And I, can, I harmonize science that way. Now, that helps. And you get into it, obviously, as we've been mentioning, in more depth in the book. But mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate that because I think sometimes people feel as though they're treated like they're really ignorant or kind of their head in the sand if they believe that the that, that, that Genesis is a narrative, that it really is literally telling us what God did. Oh, well, you disagree with science. Oh, mm -hmm. well, you, oh, you're one of those is, is kind of how people are sometimes treated. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that we know, uh, one of the scientific principles that people always operate under now, and I think that is, that's a mistaken idea. I do believe in science, uh, but they believe in uniformitarianism meaning that everything's as it always was. And we're not sure of that. We have no way of knowing that. And so uh, I can believe that God could create the world and then set things in motion and, you know, the rotation of the, the earth around the sun and so forth. Uh, yeah, it just it makes perfect sense to me that way, this way. But I, I want to say when people criticize believers in the Bible of being unscientific, we all believe in science. We, there's no question because God is the creator of science. Uh, we either have a theistic worldview or we have a naturalistic worldview. But both naturalistic worldview and theistic worldview both believe in science. It's just that the scientists make all sorts of bizarre ideas for where things came about. Like, for example, one, one of the famous atheists who thinks that uh, believers in the Bible don't believe in science. He believes in aliens taking part in the creation of the world. Uh, oh yeah, that's much more scientific 
than, than well, there's belief. a lot of evidence for that. Isn't oh, it? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so yeah, that that's what I, I I think we all believe in science. We just believe you and I in the creator of science. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the whole reason that there that there is a study of science is because, for the most part, not totally, but for the most part, Christians said. We believe that there is a way that we can observe the world around us. And we believe that there are systems in place mm-hmm. and what we call natural laws. Yeah. Believing that God creates and he creates orderly is what led people yeah. to even study it. And there are so many, and there remain many, many great scientists who are fully theistic in their view of the world and they believe in Jesus. But Sir Isaac Newton, you know, the, I would say he, he didn't invent gravity, but he discovered it. <laughs> uh, we know who invented, invented it. it yes so anyway uh we're gonna get a break here but and then i'm gonna ask you about leviticus okay oh all right well an easy one an easy one we can we can maybe talk about leviticus we're talking about 50 most important bible questions my name is michael rydelnik my co-host today is cisco Cotto. we're gonna be right back with some more discussion of this book so glad you're listening in today so stay right there we're coming right back at you Jewish people will soon begin observing Passover, such a meaningful celebration of redemption. To help you learn the significance of this festival, Chosen People Ministries is offering a free booklet, Passover, A Time for Redemption. While explaining the exodus from Egypt, this book will also show how Passover foreshadows the death and resurrection of Jesus. For your free copy, just go to openlineradio.org and click on the link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Don't miss out on this offer. We're back. I am Michael Rydelnik, and joining me today as my co-host today on Open Line is Cisco Cotto. And what we're doing is we're talking about a new book, a book I just uh, I just wrote it just a few months ago, and it's now published. I'm so excited. 50 Most Important Bible Questions. By the way, this book is our current resource, and for a gift of any size, as we've mentioned, uh, you can receive a copy of it for our way to say thank you. Uh, if you give a gift of any size to open, I just remember to ask for 50 most important Bible questions. So, Cisco, you have a couple of questions here for this last segment. Yeah, we've been a- asking questions from the book and yeah. getting really good answers. The book is obviously more thorough because you, you can write several pages on each one. Yeah. Uh, but here's a question, and I, I appreciate this one because recently I was talking with my daughter, Gabriella, who is a loyal open line listener. <laughs> Okay, she's the one who reminds me. Dr. Rydelnik is on, huh. um, and she got stuck in Leviticus. Yeah, she was doing this. I'm going to try to read through the Bible in a year. She got to Leviticus. She's 11 years old, and she. But went, she's a great reader. Know, I know. Yes, her. yes. She's a phenomenal reader. She's the book a day girl in your family. Absolutely, right? yeah. absolutely. But stacks of books from the library for her to read. And she got stuck in Leviticus. And I said, first off, to comfort her, I said, "Well, honey, uh, guess what." We all at times get stuck in Leviticus during our Read the Bible Through the Year plan. In the book, one of the questions that you answer is, why did God include Leviticus in the Bible? (laughs) So many have that question. So every year, I really encourage people in January to read through the Bible in a year. I think that's one of the best disciplines we can have. gives us great overview. Besides deep study that we might do in a particular book or something like that, just read through the Bible. And people are really good about doing that until they hit Leviticus. And then they call up and say, I don't know. I don't think I can go on. <laughs> Leviticus is so hard, but I think it's worth it. And one of the, 
one of the reasons is if we stick with it, pretty soon we start to pull out some truths that will really, really help us. And I think the most important truth that we get from the book of Leviticus is something that maybe we forget too often because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. You know, he calls us friends. We can boldly enter the presence of the Father in his name. But sometimes we forget the holiness of God. And when we read the book of Leviticus with all its precise rules about how to enter into the presence of God and how demanding God is in terms of how the sacrifices must be perfect uh, without spot or blemish and all the blood that was required to enter into his presence because he is a holy and righteous God. And when we start reading these things, I think it reminds us of the holiness of God. And that's one of the great truths of the book of Leviticus, but also it also reminds us of the great privilege that we have because we can enter into his presence boldly. We're not, we don't have to be like Esther, afraid to enter the presence of the king because will he point to scepter at me? We enter in Jesus' name. So that's one of my favorite sure. aspects. Sure. I also think it's, it's interesting uh, that the sin offerings in there point forward to the sacrificial system, of the sacrificial system, point forward to the Lord Jesus, who is our sin offering. It's fulfilled in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it shows us how the Lord Jesus is the one, his sacrifice uh, is the one that took away our sin, not the blood of fools and goats. And what's so crucial about that, uh, I remember back in the day when I was a Moody student, just like we today teach Daniel and Revelation together, back then they used to teach Leviticus and Hebrews together in one course. And and that makes total sense. That does, yeah. 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 Uh, and then... Uh, the Bible calls us priests. And uh, when you read about the consecration of of the priesthood, uh, I think this is really cool. And I'm going to read it. Uh, when the high priest was consecrated to serve God, Moses took the ram of ordination, slaughtered it, and put some of its blood on Aaron's right earlobe, right hand, and the big toe of his right foot. Now that seems so silly, right? Why do that? Uh, there's a purpose. The ear represents hearing the thumb doing, the toe walking. Basically, it was saying that the high priest was to be consecrated to serve God every day in every way. And so it was a mark of his consecration, okay? Boy, isn't that important for us? If we're priests of the living God, like the book of Revelation says, uh, we are those who mediate his truth to the world, and yet we have to be consecrated in every day, every way. Uh, holiness isn't just for Sundays, it's for everyday life. And that is what's so crucial. So there's great things to learn, many others, I think, from the book of Leviticus, but that's some of the reasons why I love that book. And that's where I'm going to, from now on, take this chapter. Anytime I go to Leviticus or encourage someone about Leviticus, <laughs> I'm going to take this chapter because what I think it will help people with is look at some of these big, really important, really glorious themes that we get from Leviticus Keep that in mind as you're reading in in some of the, the real deep woods. Keep that keep that in mind as you're reading it. And go, How is this showing me God's holiness? Mm -hmm. How, yeah, and I, I just think that would really help. Yeah. Uh, does the uh, do we have time for me to throw one more? Yeah, at you? sure. Uh, does the Old Testament? This is a question you address in the book. Does the Old Testament permit polygamy? You have a bunch of people in the Old Testament who have multiple wives. Yeah. And in theory, God could have gone, "Hey, what are you doing? Stop that!" You know, I mean, he he could have he could have done that, mm -hmm. and yet some of even our heroes of the faith, uh, yeah. you know, did that. 
I think that when we look at the creation of marriage in Genesis 2.24, I believe that's the verse, uh, you have the creation of the world in six days in 1, 1 through 2, 3. And then in 2, 4 and following, you've in chapter 2, you've got the creation on the sixth day. It's, a, it's sort of narrowing. Okay, I've given you the six days. Now I'm going to give you the sixth day. This is how God created humanity. And of course, God puts Aaron asleep. Uh, there's no partner for him. Uh, and it, while he's asleep, he takes a rib, fashions a woman, and brings the woman. And I love what my old prof Howard Hendricks used to say. He sees the woman and he breaks out into a loud whistle and goes, wow, wow, <laughs> boom. He's just, it's so expressive in Hebrew. He breaks out into song, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then, it's, then the narrator Moses breaks in. He says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and he will be joined to his wife, not wives, joined to his wife and uh, the two shall become one. And uh, it just seems so clear at this mark where God creates marriage that is between one man and one woman for their lives. That's, That's what it is. Now, there are a number of passages that people have raised that say, does this teach polygamy? I would say, first of all, just because people did it didn't make it right. The Bible records what happened not necessarily what ought to have happened. And you could see David multiplied wives and then, you know, the, the sins of the father go to the sons. Then, then Solomon goes That's right. nuts about it, even yeah. though kings yeah. were told not to multiply wives. Uh, so uh, there are a number of passages that, that deal with regulations and things like that. I think they are more easily explained uh, in other ways. And of course, I go through it in there. But the, I do not believe the Bible ever intended us to be polygamous. Yes, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean God is saying do it. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Those are some, you know, we talk about what, how do you apply the Bible? Uh, one way is to, to look at the sins to avoid. Multiple wives is a sin <laughs> to avoid. Do don't not do, do that. that. Yeah. Bigamy, polygamy, don't do it. Well, that's the first hour of Open Line. But on most of these stations, you'll be hearing the second hour of Open Line. But still, if your station doesn't carry it, you can always check it out. Go to our website, openlineradio.org. You can listen there or you can get the podcast or you can listen on the Moody Radio app. Check out our website uh, on the break now if you'd like. Uh, You can see that our current resource, 50 Most Important Bible Questions, is available. Uh, You can see about about how to become a kitchen table partner, how to get your resource from Chosen People Ministries. We're going to be right back with more of your questions right here on Open Line, so stay with us. Open Line is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Mm 